Hey, listener, thank you for joining us for this installment of the Restoration Project's weekly podcast. We are currently studying the Book of Ruth. Many people approach this well-known story as a romance between Ruth and Boaz, but it's a bit more than that. A lot more, actually. It's a story of grief and loss, bitterness and resentment. It's a story of including the stranger. It's a story of the radical and costly commitment modeled by some of the book's main characters and God's unending faithfulness even in the midst of tragedy. Ultimately, it's a story of redemption and restoration and hope. There is a lot to consider in this beautiful and ancient work of art. And as we hope to make clear, it points us ahead to the death and resurrection of Jesus. Enjoy the episode. Over the past three weeks, we have been uh, doing a sermon series on the book of Ruth. And basically, we have gone through the first chapter of the book of Ruth. And if you're new to us or if this is your first week here uh, with us, we'd like to kind of bring you up to speed on what has happened thus far in the book of Ruth. Basically, we've had a family of four that have been living in Bethlehem and Judah. And because of a famine, because of a lack of food, these four people traveled east crossed the Jordan River into foreign territory. They found themselves in Moab because there was food there. The text does not say if this was a good move, although there's lots of indications that that seem to be that this may have been a lack of faith, perhaps. But I don't want to judge the, the patriarch of this family because when you're in a spot where you need food for your family, I think that you'll go to whatever lengths you have to go to in order to provide for your people. But the Uh, This family found themselves in Moab looking for food, and within the scope of two to three verses in the Hebrew Bible in our Old Testament, the dad dies, and the two sons die, and the only person left is Naomi and her two daughters-in-law. This kind of sets the tone of the first chapter, and over the past couple weeks, we've been talking about grief and loss, and we've been talking about mourning, and we've been talking about Um, how within the American church structure, we don't really create a lot of space for grief and lament and petition. We usually try to hurry up that process and make people put a smile on their face and be okay with what's going on. I've wanted to, over the past few weeks, to at least give space where we can um, maybe take on some of Naomi's grief, having lost a husband and having lost two kids. And as she is going back to Bethlehem, And we can only imagine what her mindset is like going back to her hometown 10 years later with no husband and no kids and now these two foreign daughters-in-law potentially with her. And we can understand that when she is on this journey, she says to both of them, stop, go away, go back to the house of your mother so that you guys can be okay. It seems as though there's this, uh, at least half of her is wanting her daughters-in-law to go back home so that they can be married and be cared for because she cannot do that anymore. But I've also been um, positing over the last couple weeks that maybe there's this tinge of bitterness and resentment, and there's this edge with which Naomi speaks to her daughters-in-law. It's hard, again, to, to see what's really going on underneath of the surface here, but we can understand that sort of pain, and we can understand why she might want to be alone. Ruth, uh, in, in the text that we looked at last week, as Naomi is trying to push her away for the fourth time, Ruth finally steps up to the plate and says, I'm not going anywhere. Wherever you go, I go. 
Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die, and there I will be buried, which is a huge statement within the ancient Near East. To leave your own uh, hometown, for one, that's a big move, but then to die and to be buried in foreign territory, to take on foreign gods, these are big statements of faith and commitment that Ruth is making to Naomi. And it's interesting in that text, when she's done with this speech, Naomi just stops talking. She just gives up. And then when she gets back to Bethlehem, she says to the people, I have gone away full, but now I come back empty. While Ruth potentially is standing right next to her. But we understand this potential bitterness and this grief that Naomi is going through. And we're going to look at chapter two this week. And I had a hard time breaking this up because there's a lot of really nerdy ancient Near Eastern background type things that we could spend a lot of time on this evening. And I know that you guys are super excited about that, but I, I tried to I tried to give some bit of a, a narrative here to what's going on. So we're going to read a, a few verses in chapter two that's going to set the framework for what we talk about this evening, and we'll um, finish up chapter two next week, I believe. This is Ruth chapter two, beginning in verse one. It says, now Naomi had a respected relative, a man of worth, through her husband from the family of Elimelech. His name was Boaz. Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field so that I may glean among the ears of grain behind someone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi replied to her, go, my daughter. So she went. She arrived and she gleaned in the field behind the harvesters. By chance, it happened to be the portion of the field that belonged to Boaz, who was from the family of Elimelech. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem. He said to the harvesters, may the Lord be with you. And they said to him, may the Lord bless you. Boaz said to his young man, the one who was overseeing the harvesters, to whom does this young woman belong? The young man who was overseeing the harvesters answered, she's a young Moabite woman, the one who returned with Naomi from the territory of Moab. She said, please let me glean so that I might gather up grain from among the bundles behind the harvesters. She arrived and has been on her feet from the morning until now and has sat down for only a moment. Boaz said to Ruth, haven't you understood my daughter? Don't glean in another field. Don't go anywhere else. Instead, stay here with my young women. Keep your eyes on the field that they are harvesting and go along after them. I've ordered the young men not to assault you. Whenever you are thirsty, go to the jugs and drink from what the young men have filled. Then she bowed down, face to the ground, and replied to him, How is it that I've found favor in your eyes that you notice me? I'm an immigrant. Boaz responded to her, everything that you did for your mother-in-law after your husband's death has been reported fully to me, how you left behind your father, your mother, and the land of your birth and came to a people that you hadn't known beforehand. May the Lord reward you for your deed. May you receive a rich reward from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wing you've come to seek refuge. She said, may I continue to find favor in your eyes, sir, because you've comforted me and because you've spoken kindly to your female servants, even though I'm not one of your female servants. The word of God for the people of God. Now, how this story begins, it's important for us to note in the very first verse of chapter two, 
the editor or the narrator kind of shows up out of nowhere and says, listen, if you're going to understand the story, you have to understand this little bit. The people within the story don't necessarily know what's going on, but the editor wants us to hear this. It says, now Naomi had a respected relative. This, this word is quite difficult in the Hebrew. Nobody really understands what's going on there, but at least we know that this person is within the family line of Elimelech. Elimelech is Naomi's now deceased husband. So Naomi has this respected relative through her husband from the family of Elimelech, and this person is a man of worth, a gebor chayil, a man of uh, worth or a man of valor. This phrase is usually used of military men, but it can also be used in later Hebrew of people of means, people of consequence, people of great worth. And we see Boaz here, who's, who's a landowner, who's got all these people working his fields, and he has the means and the capabilities with which to help people. Now remember, this is, this is the editor, this is the narrator kind of popping in here. And the end of chapter one, we've got Naomi the widow and Ruth the widow. They've gone back home to where Naomi is from in Bethlehem, and they have no idea how they're going to provide for themselves. In fact, in chapter one, Naomi says to Ruth, I don't have any offspring for you because in this time, when a woman was widowed, it was the job of the brother of the deceased husband to provide that woman with kids, to marry her. But Naomi was saying, I don't have anybody that can fit that bill. Now, what's interesting is the, the editor is saying, behind the scenes, you must know this. Boaz, the filthy rich guy that we're about to meet, he can help these people. Which leads to this very obvious question, why didn't Naomi ever mention this guy? Why is it that she doesn't say to Ruth, hey Ruth, when we go back to Bethlehem, there is Boaz. Maybe he'll be able to help us. In fact, at the end of the story, spoiler alert here, Boaz cannot take Ruth to be his wife because someone else actually has first dibs on her. So he must go and talk to this guy. So there's not one, but two people that might be able to help this family. But Naomi hasn't mentioned this at all. It's also at least worth pausing here for a second and asking the question, why didn't Boaz present himself to these people beforehand? Naomi and Ruth have both come back to Naomi's former hometown, and nobody has shown up at the door to, to greet them or to welcome them or to, to bring them back in or to help them in any real way. Now, when the story continues, or the first action that we see of Ruth, and this is really where we're going to camp out tonight. I don't really want to address those questions of why Naomi didn't say that Boaz was there or why Boaz didn't show up. Those are just things that we can ponder off to the side. But what we see in this uh, chapter 2 is Ruth becoming one with ambition and purpose. And she says, let me go to the field that I might glean among the ears of grain behind someone in whose eyes I might find favor. She begins to say, I'm going to take control here and I'm going to go out and make good on, on what is a terrible situation. One scholar says, if these women live in social and familial famine, they need not yield to physical hunger. And Ruth is the one who is going to go out and attempt to alleviate this problem. Ruth becomes the provider in this story. Naomi stays at home and another thoughtful question that we can ask is, why? Why isn't Naomi going out to the fields to gather grain? 
We don't know, and some people have wondered if there's some, uh, something wrong with Naomi or if she's just so overcome by grief that she can't bring it upon herself to leave, but Ruth is taking it upon herself to begin to provide for this family. Now, I said that there's lots of nerdy things that we can talk about. I at least want to talk about one thing that I know is gonna get you guys excited. Gleaning laws in the ancient Near East, guys. Who's pumped about that? Thank you, a couple of you. In order to understand what's going on, we have to understand something about gleaning laws in this uh, socio-historical context. It's actually built into the law that immigrants and orphans and widows were able to go to fields and to pick up what is left over in the fields. One uh, passage in Leviticus chapter 19, it says, when you harvest your land's produce, you must not harvest all the way to the edge of your field and don't gather up every remaining bit of your harvest. Also do not pick your vineyard clean or gather up all the grapes that have fallen there. Leave these items for the poor and the immigrant. I am the Lord your God. In Deuteronomy chapter 24, a similar law code uh, is, is written, whenever you are reaping the harvest of your field and you leave some grain in the field, don't go back and get it. Let it go to the immigrants, the orphans, and the widows so that the Lord your God blesses you in all that you do. I want to ask us if there is something that we might be able to glean from these Old Testament laws on gleaning. If there's something that's built into the fabric of the Old Testament law where they're attempting to care for the immigrant and the orphan and the widow that we maybe as Americans have, have missed. Because when you think about good business practices, like this is terrible. You don't harvest everything that you've planted. And if you drop something, you don't pick it up. You just leave it there because some poor person will come along and they, they need that. This is not how capitalism works. In America, the very little bits of capitalism that I do know, I don't think that this necessarily fits in with what's going on. Within the Old Testament, we see something very different. Uh, John Goldengay says, the harvesters who are reaping the grain, they don't try to do it too efficiently. In a sense, they kind of leave some stalks of grain purposefully there for people that are less fortunate to be cared for. They leave something behind for people who don't belong to regular families and don't have fields and therefore have no way of trying to ensure that they have food to eat. I think it's important for us to at least wonder for a second if these ancient laws in the Old Testament, if there's something that's built in about the character of God and the integrity and worth of people that sometimes we, in our zeal to make copious amounts of money and have our retirement padded, that we might miss in our context. Now, I don't want to overread Ruth, but I do think that it's interesting that in this um, socioeconomic context that the way that they're going about this is much, much, much different than the way that we go about this. And you could pause for a moment and say, just very simply, how are we helping the immigrant how are we helping widows? How are we helping orphans? What does it look like in our context to do those things when that is built into the very fabric of the Old Testament law? Now, this text, it gets weird because it says that when Ruth shows up to this field, um, she asks these questions of the head harvester. 
She says specifically to him, please let me glean. That's a weird question for something that's built into the, to the law. This is something that is um, made clear within the Israelite people that when immigrants and widows and orphans show up, that you're supposed to allow them to, to glean. So why Ruth would show up and ask for permission is odd. Commentators and scholars have been troubled over this verse in particular. But the question here, please let me glean, is not necessarily the thing that's, that trips them up. It's rather this second bit where she says, please let me glean so that I might gather up grain from among the bundles behind the harvesters. Okay, now this is where you need to know something about the practices of gleaning in the ancient Near East, okay? Basically what you have is you have a bunch of guys who will go along down the rows of grain and they'll get the, row, the grain in their left hand and with their sickle in their right hand, they'll cut it down, and then they'll start a bundle of these pieces of grain. You can tell that I'm a farmer and I really know what I'm talking about, okay? But basically, when they, they gather this grain, they will um, hold it until it becomes unmanageable, and then they will lay a, a bundle of grain to the side where the women will later come along and wrap it up and make it nice and neat. And some people, what they have proposed is what Ruth is asking to do is to become a part of, of this progression of harvesters, but she doesn't want to stay back in the back, and she doesn't want to just pick up the straggling pieces that have been left behind. She wants to go immediately behind the harvesters. She wants to grab from the bundles that they are putting together, which was not appropriate. Now, I do need to say this because um, scholars have said things to this nature. They said, in our estimation, this text, it defies explanation, and we are left with admitting that any explanation is a guess. Ruth 2, verse 7 is a terribly difficult passage, and I don't want to put too much into it, but I think that what we see here is potentially a picture of Ruth, who is one that is being bold and aggressive. She's not reserved. She's not a self-effacing foreigner. She would be asking something rather brash, according to Robert Hubbard. Namely, she's asking to glean not just among the standing stalks, but among the piles of already harvested grain. What makes this passage even more crazy is, is this last clause here where it says, she arrived and has been on her feet from the morning until now and has sat down only for a moment. Now, some people would say that she's out in the field and she's working, but other people have wondered if this means when she goes with these questions about where she can glean and how much she can glean, if she's not asking that question and then standing there and waiting for Boaz to show up because she knows that the boy that's leading these harvesters cannot give her authority to do what it is that she wants to do. It's as if Ruth, the Moabitess, who is trying to protect Naomi, the widow, who for some unknown reason is staying home and they have no food and she's going there and saying, listen, I've got a big bold request that I'm going to make right now. I want to go, but I don't wanna just get the stuff on the edges and I don't wanna just get the stuff that's picked over. I actually wanna go stand behind the harvesters and pick up things because I have to provide for my mother-in-law back home. Can you do that for me? And some people, the way that they read this is not Ruth as this meek and mild person, but Ruth as this aggressive and bold and assertive female in the ancient Near East from a town not here. And she comes into the scene and kind of lights it on fire a bit. Ruth becomes not only the provider, but Ruth becomes the risk taker. 
I think that we can pause here for a moment too and understand if this is in fact what's going on, and I don't wanna make a huge case for it, but if Ruth is asking these big, bold, aggressive questions, and if she is waiting to provide for her mother-in-law in a way that the law doesn't say that she is able to do, how much are we willing to risk for the people in our lives and the people on the margins in our lives? Are we able to provide and are we able to take risks for those people? Now, Boaz responds either way, even if Ruth is being like this demure, very polite person, he still responds positively and we should still hear this message that he gives to Ruth. Haven't you understood, my daughter? Don't go glean in another field. Don't go anywhere else. Instead, stay here with my young women. And what Boaz is allowing Ruth to do is to become part of his work crew. She's not on the margins and she's not picking up the, the leftover stuff, but she is now part of his women that will go and that will glean for him and for her family. He tacks on, I've ordered the young men not to assault you. And I've got to just stop here for a second because Naomi is not helping her, her sister out here, right? Naomi is just saying when Ruth says, I'm gonna go and I'm gonna glean, can I do that? Yeah, sure, go. Naomi doesn't tell her that they've got some people that are close to the family that she could go and glean from, people in whose fields she could find favor because they are family. And she also leaves out this whole bit about, oh yeah, and when you go, you might get assaulted in your work. So you just might wanna keep your eyes peeled for that, Ruth. I don't know what to do with Naomi in this book, but what Boaz is saying is, I've ordered the young men not to assault you. It was potentially dangerous for women to show up and to glean and to provide for their families in this way. He even goes farther. Whenever you are thirsty, go to the jugs and drink from what the young men have filled. And what Boaz is basing this on is Ruth's commitment to her mother-in-law. He says, I've heard about the things that you've done. I've heard that when you came here, you left everything behind to care for your mother-in-law. I've heard that you might be this aggressive and assertive and bold woman who isn't afraid to come into my field and tell me that you want to be in a different place so that you can provide for your family. I hear of the things that you're doing, Ruth, and I understand that. We have Ruth as one who is providing for her family. She's taking risks for her family. She's being committed to her family against all odds. Which leaves us with this question, how in the world do we apply any of this? I had a great conversation with somebody after church last week where it's like, okay, this is a great old story and we can rip it apart. We can look at its ancient Near Eastern context and we can see what it's doing as a piece of literature, but what does any of this have to do with us? And you can see, like, as I've been going through, there's certain characteristics about Ruth that I think that we should try to emulate. We should provide for our families and we should provide for people even outside of our family unit, for the people on the margins and the outskirts. We should be people that are generous. We should be people that are taking risks to care for others. We should be people that are taking risks to have conversations with folks about Jesus in a way that's natural and in a way that's um, meaningful to people. We should be uh, folks that are committed to our own, to our families, yes, but to the people that you see across the aisle the people within our community, and even beyond the people within the safe confines of the Restoration Project. We should be committed and faithful and present in the lives of people that are broken and hurting. There are things that we can see from Ruth and we can say like, yeah, I'd like to embody that. I'd like to emulate that. She's certainly given us a lot to shoot for here. 
But when we look at the Old Testament and we just see these characters and we try to take all of the good qualities and extract them and apply them to our own lives, I think that we're missing a massive point of these stories because at their core, these stories are not about us. These stories are about God and the way that God is bringing redemption to completion through his son, Jesus Christ. Now, we're quite a ways away from that in the story of Ruth, but there is at least one almost throwaway line in this story that is begging to be reread. How do we apply any of this? I think it's important for us to go back uh, for a moment and to read this text in Ruth chapter two, and it's found in verse three. This is after, she had, after Ruth has asked for permission from her mother-in-law to go and to glean, and Naomi says, go, my daughter. And then it says, so she went. She arrived and she gleaned in the field behind the harvesters. Translations vary on how they do this. The Common English Bible says, by chance, it happened to be the portion of the field that belonged to Boaz, who was from the family of Elimelech, who is Naomi's deceased husband by chance, and it just so happened. And by a stroke of luck, Ruth finds herself in a field where the landowner not only has means, has wealth, but he's related to these people. And it's at least interesting that the editor, the way that they're crafting the story, by chance, makes us think for a moment about the role of God in our lives, in the role of God in the story of, of Ruth. And as we see this, this passage being played out, it's not just by chance that Ruth finds herself here. It's not just by chance that there's people within Naomi's family line that can help to care for these widows. It's not just by chance or by a stroke of luck. Some people have even said that this, this line is kind of tongue-in-cheek within the Old Testament because what's really happening here is the, the, the author, the editor, is screaming for us to see, can't you understand how involved and invested God is in this story and how it's going to pan out? The number one conversation that I have with you guys in my role as a minister begins like this. Why is God so elusive? Why is God not present in my life? Why is it that when I need God, he's nowhere to be found? And I think sometimes we forget the role that God has in our life and the way that he is shaping who we are and where we are going. But what's interesting about this story, it's not just that God is the puppeteer and he's crafting all of these situations and circumstances. It's almost as if he's reliant upon the character of Ruth to take a bold risk and to go out to provide for her mother-in-law. It's almost as if he's reliant upon Boaz being a man of character who says to Ruth, yes, Come on in. And you know what? You don't just pick up the scraps in the back. Come on up to the front, and you be one of my people. And for, for Boaz to do that with a foreigner, it's crazy. But what we see in this passage, it's not just by chance. It's by God's people doing what they are called to do that allows God's name to be magnified, and praised, and glorified.
Sometimes we just sit back and we say, why is God so elusive? Because what we want to happen is the heavens to rip open and God to descend and say, hey, I can tell you where you should go to college. Or, hey, I can tell you where you should apply for a job. Or, hey, I know your bank account only has $4.26. Here's a 20. I mean, we just, we want these, these grandiose things where God shows up, but what we miss is the obedience that he seems to require from us that his will might be done. We have Ruth as this committed provider who is taking risks so that God can do great things in her life. And we have Boaz, who is a man of character that's living this out so that God can be magnified and glorified. And here's the question. What is God calling you to do and how can we live as faithful and obedient people to allow this story to progress? How can we build the kingdom here and now? How can we bring heaven to earth? How can we help to fight for people on the margins and the outskirts, yes, but also people within our own close-knit community? How can we be people through whom God is at work each and every day? It is not by chance. It is by God's people being faithful that his work and his will is allowed to be played out here and now. And it begs us to address the question, what is our role in it? Thanks again for joining us. If you live in the Salisbury area, we invite you to visit us for one of our weekly services on Sunday evenings at 5.30 p.m. Whatever your story is, there's room for you here. And again, if you'd like more information, please visit our website at restoresby.org. Hope to see you soon.